weekend, though, we're in between series. I had this message, and I was praying and wondering, what am I going to talk about in between these two series? And guess what I came up with? That's right. You saw it on your outline, probably. Homosexuality. I thought this would be a great opportunity to allow the Bible to weigh in on this very important and somewhat sensitive topic in our, in our culture today. I received an email uh, about a year and a half ago, and here's what it said. Hi, Mike. My husband and I have attended LCN on and off for a couple of years and have always loved the community there. My big question to you is this. If we were to bring our 25-year-old gay son to church with us, would he feel welcomed? The Christian church has not been a friendly place for him, even hypocritical, and he would now consider himself agnostic. This issue has caused all of our kids to turn against the church. Sorry for the heavy question, but we would really love to know if LCN is a place that we could attend. That's a tough email. And I know this is a very difficult subject for many of us. And before I even get started, I think a couple of things need to be said. First of all, the Christian church has done a pretty lousy job of being able to relate to and love well the the homosexual community. And sadly, the Christian church as as a whole has been pretty mean-spirited and misrepresented the love of God in a lot of different ways. Many gay people grew up hearing that being gay was the lowest form of sinfulness and that God didn't love them. And it's no wonder that so many of them, from hearing that kind of a skewed message, have felt animosity, hurt, and anger towards Christianity. So if you're gay or maybe you feel offended on behalf of someone, who is in your family or someone who's a friend who's gay, whatever amount of church I represent to you, I just want to offer my apology and ask for forgiveness for the way that we, the churches, have treated you as being self-righteous, being hypocritical, where you should be treated with respect, and with honor, with value, without prejudice, and without persecution, especially by those who claim to know Jesus Christ. So I want to invite us into a conversation, a conversation around the Scripture, acknowledging that it's our heart's desire to know Jesus Christ, to follow Him, and to treat our friends and our family members who may be gay really, really well. So we've, we've, we've got this complexity where we're taking the Scripture and the sacredness of Scripture, wanting to live into it, wanting to walk it out, wanting to be true to it, and yet also wanting to do it in a way that breeds love and walks in a spirit of humility. The Bible says this about itself found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
That statement is a statement that each and every person has to decide, do I believe that? Am I going to live with that? That God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's valuable for my life to train me, to correct me, to speak into my life. Or will I just pick and choose the fun and nice parts, the easy parts of Scripture and disregard the, the, the rest or bend the rest to make it fit my own agenda? We have to go at the Word of God as much as we can without agenda, without a gay agenda, without a straight agenda, without a political agenda. And we just have to go to the Word in humility and say, Lord, you breathed on this and it's for my life. How can I incorporate it? How can I embrace it? And how can I walk it out? So I'm going to try and uh, do that. Just give some clarity on the scripture and wrestle with it. Because in the scripture, there's, there's a tension that exists that we have to acknowledge between truth and grace. There's the truth of his word and the grace of Jesus Christ. And somehow they have to come together. We have to learn how to walk in that, acknowledging that the church as a whole has done a, a pitiful job of treating the homosexual community like Jesus would treat them. And we need to repent. And yet in our sense of embarrassment and regret, we also can't swing on the pendulum to wanting to just please and appease the culture around us. But we have to we have to be true and integrous with the Word of God while repenting and while seeking maybe new ways to walk out that tension that I mentioned. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're not going to hit every place in the Scripture that talks about homosexuality, but I want to give a bit of a perspective there as well as a perspective on our sexuality and our identity as a whole. So... We call the book of Romans, Romans, because it was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And it was a gospel that Paul was unpacking of the theology of the gospel as a whole. And what we read in Romans chapter 1 is this unfolding of the gospel. And what we see is, is, is that God made us, that God made everything, and that he called us into a relationship, but we rejected him and went our own way. And when we did, he turned us over to ourselves. And in that, we began to see society degradate. So let's look at this together, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not uh, they, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's a tough passage. It's a big passage. And I think that we can all see ourselves in the passage. Now, if you go over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, we also have to balance the Romans 1 passage with this. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Jesus himself said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So how do you understand a difficult passage like Romans chapter 1 and, and, and weigh it against the other part of the Bible that's equally valid with 1 John chapter 4? How, why would God call homosexuality or the behavior of homosexual sin a uh, sin? and yet be a loving God and say God is love. And that's what we're trying to wrap our mind around this morning. Now, keep in mind that cultural confrontation is not new to our day. It's not something that's just happening right now, the, the word of God confronting our culture, because it confronts cultures everywhere all across the globe. For example, if you were to take the gospel over to the Middle East, they may quickly and readily embrace the sexual ethics and the moral commands of Scripture, but they may struggle greatly with pray for those who persecute you and love your enemy. The Bible confronts cultural kinds of things like polygamy or bribery or devaluing women. See, it's not new for the gospel to speak into culture and confront it. The other thing to keep in mind is that Paul would have known that both in Rome and in Corinth that it was homosexuality was a, a very normal practice in that culture and in that day. In Rome and in Corinth, you have homosexual relationships. You have many of the men were not only homosexual, they were bisexual. And, and what, you, what you see here is adult-to-adult consenting relationships, not just abusive master-slave relationships. And it's in this context that Paul writes this passage written into a culture that's similar to our own. Let's look again at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so what, what's happening here is that God, the creator, created 
human beings. He created you and, 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 and I in order to love him and obey him and walk with him and to receive uh, our sense of purpose and our, and our sense of identity in him. But instead, we went our own way. We, we decided that we could do better on our own than with God at the center. See, God created us to be thankful, to be worshipers of him. But the scripture tells us whenever our heart turns away from thankfulness and worship, from a love relationship with our creator, then our minds become futile, which means that we, we become ineffective in our ability to draw good conclusions. And our heart gets darkened and becomes foolish. And we, we turn uh, to become very easily deceived. And what happens is that, th that we believe somewhere within ourselves that we can find fulfillment without God through our self-expression, through our self-fulfillment. See, verse 21 doesn't just describe homosexual behavior. It describes all of our behaviors. We find ourselves in that list somewhere because all of us, in some way or another, have turned away from God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. And the thinking goes something like this. I'm meant to be happy. I'm meant to be happy, and anything that threatens my happiness, I'm not, I'm not going to receive it into my life. For example, if God and his word appear to restrict me in any shape or form, then I all of a sudden look at God now from a lens of, of you are threatening my happiness and you have become my oppressor. You're not my freedom fighter. You're, you're not the one that leads me to fulfillment. You're the one that wants to constrict and repress me. No matter what sense of sexual orientation that you may have, think with me for a moment that whether you're heterosexual or whether you're homosexual, that the idea of staying pure and not experiencing sex until the day you are married, it's an oppressive thought for a lot of people, Christian or not. I talk to uh, young people all of the time, and, and as you know, I mean, many young people feel like that's too difficult to do I don't know what God was smoking when he came up with that. I'm going to go my way, and I'm going to experiment, and I'll experience what I need to, to to be fulfilled. That's how we think. It happens in marriage as well. I've talked to many married people that if they're not getting sex on the frequency level they feel they deserve, or the sex isn't as amped up as they feel it ought to be, or maybe they're not being treated by their spouse in a way that feels valued and loved and cared for, then we often say, I deserve to be happy so I can get a divorce. I deserve to be happy so I can go hang out in the porn room for a long time. I deserve to be happy so I can go have an affair. You see, it affects all of us in the ways that we think. Whenever we reject God, and we look to ourselves to make ourselves happy, and we feel that is our right to be happy, then our hearts become darkened and our thinking becomes futile. The Apostle Paul goes on to say this in verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God for images 
made to look like mortal human beings. In other words, this is the beginning of idolatry, where instead of looking to God for all of our fulfillment and all of our purpose and all of our meaning and all of our identity, we begin to look to one another. We begin to look to things. We begin to look to money, to power, to sex. We look to anything other than God to bring that fulfillment. And again, that affects every single one of us. So Paul is saying there's this exchange that goes on for what life was really intended to be about, where we commune with God and we worship God and we're thankful for everything that he is and all that he's done in our life. And we find our freedom in God and we find our self-fulfillment in God. Instead, we begin to bend inward, taking control and wanting to find freedom and meaning through our, own, through our own means, through money, sex, power, or through our sexual orientation. Let me express my, myself the way I think I deserve and need to. Paul's writing in Romans 1, and when, it, when, he, when he writes this, he's saying that, that the creation is rejecting the creator. So God turned them over to... Uh, to passions. It says in verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Homosexuality was prevalent in their culture. Paul is not trying to pick on homosexuality. He's merely pointing it out as an illustration in the midst of a lot longer list of how we, as the creation, turned away from God and pursued our own means of freedom and self-fulfillment. See, sex was never meant to be the ultimate sense of freedom or the main pathway to fulfillment. Sex is not the primary issue. It's not, it's not the main thing. Sex is a gift from God. It's not God. Sexuality in our culture is seen as this ultimate thing when the truth of the matter is it's a secondary thing. Your sexuality is not your identity. It will never be the pathway to lead you to, towards freedom or fulfillment in the way the culture tells us that it will. Now, a couple things need to be said. First, the sense of self-fulfillment and entitlement to be happy is an entire culture issue. And it affects every single one of us in this room, not just those who practice homosexuality. We are all in equal need of God's grace and his mercy and his help. And the second thing I want to point out is sexual desire is not the same thing as acting on it. So those of you who may be here or people that you know and love in your life who who are confused maybe about their sexuality or they have same-sex attraction, that is not a sin. And that is not the same thing as acting upon it. So it's appropriate as a faith community that we can live honestly with those temptations or those desires and we can talk about them, we can pray about them, and we can stand with, with each other to stand against temptation. The problem is our culture is working so hard to convince us that the largest expression and meaning of ourself is to 
discover our sexuality in the context of identity. And because that in and of itself is a rip-off thought. Because to God, you are so much more than your sexuality. You are a child of God. You do not need an identifier, a modifier, an adjective before man or woman. You have been made in God's image as an image bearer. You're not identified by your sexual orientation. Your identity is not defined by what you do or how much you have or your sexual preference. You are a son or a daughter of the creator God who made you in his image, designed to be made whole in him and to live a life that brings glory to his name. So much more. So let's look at one of the passages that also refers to uh, homosexuality along with many other things found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, Paul now is speaking into the Corinthian culture that was similar to the Roman culture. And, uh, and he says, these are things that keep us from the kingdom. These are things that sidetrack us from knowing God. He says in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you have to admit that it's, it's a pretty big stretch to look at that whole list and pull homosexuality out of that and point at that and say, see how bad that is? I mean, I don't know what it is about us as human beings, but we tend to minimize our own issues and make someone else's into something huge. Mine are a little deal, but yours are gross, you know? (laughs) What is that with us? Homosexuality is just tucked into a much longer list. I mean, greed in America? Cheaters? Thieves? See, we all find ourselves here broken and in need of Christ. And then I love this verse, verse 11. It says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That means that your primary identity is not found in your sexuality. It is in Christ. You are a man or woman adopted by God. You are his dearly loved son or daughter of Abba Father. And that's what some of you were. But now you are in Christ. And when we get that, it changes the game on our personhood and our sense of identity. It's a massive gospel declaration on all who sit here today feeling guilty or shame-filled over behaviors, or maybe confused about your own sexual orientation. It's a declaration of freedom, true freedom, not a freedom that comes from trying to find our hope in sexual expression, but a true freedom that says you can come out of the closet in the context of your faith community. You know why? Because you're on a journey with a bunch of other people coming out of the closet too, in lots of different areas of our life. You were that. Now you're in Christ. That's irreducible. 
That's the name above all other names. That means you can honestly seek him. You are much more than your sexual orientation. A question comes out of this particular passage. Do homosexuals go to hell? Let me be clear. Nobody goes to hell for homosexuality or adultery or for being greedy or for having premarital sex. You don't go to hell over a behavior. You go to hell for self-righteousness, to believe you didn't need Christ, to believe you didn't need the gospel. And that can show up as a religious self-righteousness that says, hey, I'm a heterosexual and I keep all the laws, I'm good. Or it could show up in a non-religious self-righteousness that says, hey, I'm okay, I don't need anybody else, I don't need God. Before Christ, the playing field is leveled. And all of us are broken and all of us have sinned and all of us are desperate for Christ and receiving the wholeness that he extends. See, the bottom line is we all need Christ. And when we admit that, no matter what our sexual orientation is, Christ is ready to receive you, to forgive you, and to wash you and cleanse you and rename you, make your identity centered around him, not in anything else. He'll set you free. We've got to quit looking to this culture for our affirmation, looking to this culture to tell us where to find our identity. Culture often gets it wrong. Smart people get it wrong. I mean, our culture embraces as normative behaviors like divorce and abortion and getting high and premarital sex and pornography. Feeling those are normal things, and, you know, we we need to be out doing that. And to disagree on any of those points puts you in a camp with them, with our culture, that you're narrow-minded, you're a prude, you're uneducated, you're dogmatic, and you're judgmental. But Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I realize that that puts us in an awkward place. When you stand for something and you believe in something bigger than yourself, it's not easy to walk it out in the face of a culture that comes against you. So how do you love your gay friends and invite them to follow Jesus, knowing that the Bible teaches homosexual behavior is a sin like many other sins? I don't have it all figured out. But here's one thing I would offer is share that we have a common story of trying to pursue freedom in life and love. And knowing that all of our stories, they're imperfect and they're flawed and they're incomplete. We need to communicate that our understanding of the scripture is also a journey where we're understanding it. We don't have it all figured out. And being in those relationships where we listen and we understand It's invaluable for the journey. I think it's also important that as we talk about Jesus and invite people to the hope of the gospel, that you check your own heart and recognize that you have plenty of areas of brokenness and sin. And if you or I ever think that we're better than somebody else, 
we're going to just bring more hurt to the world. We've got to stay in a humble, pliable place, realizing that we breathe grace. We need it. We live by it. One of the best ways to get rid of hypocrisy or self-righteousness in this particular area is make it a point to become a good friend of someone who's gay. See that friendship as a gift from God. Love that person well like Jesus would, not as a project to change, but as a person to embrace, a friend or a family member, someone who's deeply valued and loved, not for who you want them to be, but for who they are today. And secondly, this is where it gets harder, is don't compromise the truth or capitulate to culture. Learn to live in the tension of grace and truth, which means we've got to stay on our knees and stay humble and continually seek God for discernment and wisdom. The last thing I want to do is address how do you walk with Jesus if you are gay? Well, there's no overly simple answer here. But what I would say is that we are on this common journey in our sexuality. And we live in a culture that is hyper over sensualized and over sexualized and is telling us that our real fulfillment will be found through our self identity, through our self expression, and embracing all of that. And the gospel is a call for change to all people. A gospel is a call to change. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I, many times, God asks us to do things that are incredibly difficult. Like the wife of a husband who doesn't treat her that well, who belittles her faith and devalues her. And yet God calls her to stay in that marriage and love her husband in a sacrificial way. It's beyond what I would even know how hard that must be. Or like my sister and brother-in-law caring night and day for a special needs child with trisomy 9, a very rare chromosome disorder. Their choice to not abort but to love and care for Ethan his whole life and endure all of the suffering and all of the, all of, all of the surgeries and all of the things that he's had to go through to honor Christ in that. Living a life that is far more difficult than most of us in this room. Or for the heterosexual single person who's 30, been waiting their whole life to get married, no one in sight. They've denied their sexual urges time and time and time again. And Christ says, I want you to walk with me, abstaining from sex for years more. See, people with homosexual desires are not the only ones who have to die to self and live a hard life. Many people are called to things to pick up a cross and carry Christ in a way that few other people will ever understand. And it just doesn't seem fair. And I don't understand that. I really don't. But the gospel says your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. You now belong to Christ. Glorify God in your body. See, the bottom line is we're all called to bring our sexuality, all of our life and everything in our heart to the cross and to set it there and to receive the grace and the mercy that we need. It may mean living a single celibate life because you're never going to be attracted to the opposite sex. That may be hard. It may be lonely. But it's a place where Christ will meet you 
And he will fill you with the capacity to do that. He himself lived as a celibate man throughout his entire life. Or maybe God would bring you to a place where he would begin to change your passions, where you would begin to uh, desire the opposite sex, like what happened for one of my homosexual friends, Joe, who submitted his passions to God and asked for that change, and God began to give that. He's now married with a child. See, to all of us, you're a man, you're a woman, loved by God, made in his image, called to be free and fulfilled, not by your own ways, but by the creator who made you through a life of thankfulness and worship. Jesus is the hope of your soul, not your sexuality. Jesus is with us when we fail and when we doubt and when we fear and when we're lonely. But if we trust him, He's faithful. He's trustworthy. And Jesus, he taught us clearly that our sexuality was to be understood not as an identity issue, but as a gift, as a grace given for one man to be joined with one woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship, mutually loving and serving each other. And yet Jesus also was the most compassionate person that ever lived And he understands our propensities and our struggles. And that's why he died on a cross for each and every one of us that we might come into a perfect love, that we can bring all of who we are and all of who we're not. We can bring brokenness and all at the foot of the cross. And it's in that place that we give honor and glory to God. It's in that place he touches and changes our life. And it's in that place that we discover who we really are. Let's pray together. God, our creator, Father, Abba, we turn to you this morning and we ask for your help and your strength, Lord, to learn how to live a life in Christ. We ask, God, for your forgiveness over our hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We ask that you show us how to walk in the tension of truth and grace amongst our friends and our family that we love so dearly. We ask, God, that you show each one of us in a unique way that only you can do how we can come to you and surrender all. That every one of us look for ways to fulfill ourselves that's not turning to you, Jesus. Not really receiving the life that you died on the cross to give us. Would you speak to us this morning? Begin to bring greater freedom to all of our hearts and lives. and Lead us on that path of mutual struggle filled with the Holy Spirit to follow after you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.